Well, good evening. Welcome to our midweek Wednesday service here. Uh, if, if you're a guest, um, we don't ask you to take part in this next portion of what we do, which we consider worship. Uh, but that is to be an expression of stewardship with everything that we are, do, say, and have. And, and that is to give our weekly tithes, offering, um, not to Timberline, but, but through Timberline to impact our world. And we're going to be talking a little bit about that tonight, even this weekend with some things coming up. So ushers, thank you so much. You can go ahead and pass those plates. And uh, again, thank you, Timberline, just for your faithfulness to um, do the ministry here at the church and, and to support it. Prayer, giving in so many different ways. <coughs> I want to ask a question real quickly before we begin. Um, because I don't want people to raise hands in response to this, I'm going to have you take your hand down in response to it. Would everyone hold up, hold up a hand, okay? You can hold it like this if you're not comfortable, whatever, but just hold up a hand. And um, I'm going to read a list um, of television shows. And if you have seen one of these shows, if you've ever watched one, you can put your hand down, okay? I'm just going to read through. It's, it's a bit of a long list, but okay? Uh, Duck Dynasty, Sister Wives, Half Pint Brawlers, Wife Swap, Toddlers and Tears, Teen Mom, Pawn Stars, Jersey Shore, Barbecue Pitmasters, Axemen, John and Kate Plus 8, Ice Road Truckers, The Real Housewives of Orange County, New Jersey, Atlanta, New York, Beverly Hills, Miami, King of Cars, America's Got Talent, The Ultimate Fighter, Who's Your Daddy, LA Inc., Miami Inc., Deadliest Catch, Shalom in the Home, Dog Whisper, Laguna Beach, Brand, uh, bands Reunited, Amish in the City, Growing Up Gaudy, The Apprentice, The Swan, The Biggest Loser, American Choppers, Room Raiders, The Bachelorette, The Surreal Life, Joe Millionaire, Wife Swap, Extreme Makeover, Celebrity Fit Club, Fraternity Club, Sorority Club, The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, Fear Factor, Cheaters, Survivor, Big Brother, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, Road Rules, Cops, The Real Stories of the Highway Patrol, The Real World. Okay, oh, there's a couple of you who are just so much more spiritually mature than the rest of us. You don't watch TV. You've been reading your Bibles during those times. Um, <clears throat> on January 6th, 1973, almost uh, just a little over 40 years ago this last January, um, there was an anthropologist by the name of Margaret Mead. Margaret Mead wrote an article that appeared in the, in the TV guide uh, on, on January uh, 73. And um, she wrote this little piece. It was kind of an interesting piece, and it was, it, it was like way at the very back of the magazine after the listings. It was tucked right in between an advertisement for Virginia Slims and a, a profile on Shelley Winters. And in this little, this little article, she's, um, she wrote about a new television series that PBS um, had, had put on called An American Family. An American Family was about this family named the Louds, and they were a middle-class California household, Bill and Pat Loud, and their five children. And what she said is almost trying to figure out what this was. She said, uh, Bill and Pat Loud and their five children are neither actors nor public figures. Mead wrote, quote, rather they were the people they portrayed on television. She's trying to figure this out. Members of a real family. And so producers took this seven months of filming that they had done, and they, they, they cut it up amidst just the boredom moments and the fighting moments, including the um, 
the dissolving of the marriage of, of this couple. And they put it together in 12 one-hour episodes that aired. And Mead, this anthropologist, wrote in this article, we have a new kind of art form, she said. She called it an innovation, this is interesting, as significant as the innovation of drama or the novel itself. Now, for decades after An American Family, uh, nothing happened. 1992, MTV aired a series called The Real World. <coughs> it was kind of repackaged. It's the same kind of thing where it's not actors, it's real people thrown into a scenario. There's kind of a twist on it. It's young adults, and they're thrown into a scenario where we, we watch them, get to know them as they're getting to know those around them. Uh, eight years later, in the year 2000, <coughs> um, two new series kind of snuck into the American primetime, Big Brother, which was uh, built around this kind of surveillance-style footage of cameras being hidden and, and, and watching people sort of in a competition way, and a show called Survivors, these isolated people put on uh, in these almost uh, fake, faux, um, tribal competitions with each other. Now, both of these shows were, were really game shows, as well as kind of um, earthy anthropological studies of what people do and what goes on. But what's interesting is through this kind of final phase here, um, these experiments, they convinced uh, executives at the television station that, that people want to see real, as much as that can be achieved, unguarded lives of people. They want more than just good acting. In fact, they're willing to put up with, with, with poor acting, uh, grainy camera shots and not, you know, not good cinematography. They're willing to put up with that because there's an interest that has kind of risen above all of that. And this is to get behind what people do to kind of the motives. What if I could see an interview and this person's talking about why they did something? The inside story, what is, what is the mindset of this person who's doing this or doing that? And we're now more than a decade um, into this era that, that this anthropologist, Margaret Mead, and she died in 1978, she saw coming and she said this, I think we need a new name for it, she wrote. Um, and in the past decade, of course, what we've kind of settled on is, what do we call it? Right, we all know it, reality TV. Um, why? Wh why, just culturally, what's going on in this, in this movement that all of us are kind of, except the eight of you who read your Bibles that have watched television, the rest of us, and me, I don't. I was reading the Bible, so I don't see any of those. Um, are kind of interested in this, what, you know, what is it about it that, that we find so interesting? Um, and again, I think it's because the promise, the thought that I'll catch a glimpse at, at kind of what's going on behind, you know, why people do things, those, those inner motives, those, those unguarded moments where a person's really responding, what's going on, were they hurt by when this person said this, what, how did they really feel? Not just what they did, but again, why did they do these things. We're starting a, a five-week Easter series here tonight. We're going to be going actually one week past Easter Sunday, in, in which we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to there. Um, in Philippians chapter 2, we have a passage that, that is arguably the centerpiece of the entire New Testament, if I can, if I can go that far. Because see, in this passage, 
we get two things. Um, we get a glimpse at behind-the-scenes motives, thoughts of God himself. What's God's motive? Why does he do stuff? What's his mindset? If I could see an unguarded picture of why does he do what he does in his character and his very nature, because it flows out of that. Um, and I receive a sketch of my own goal, your own goal, for human existence. In fact, it's the definitive picture of how we are to live and the means by which we will most fully experience our humanity, what it means to be human. So would you do this with me? Would you read with me? Philippians chapter 2. Actually, going to start in verse 3 and read through verse 11. Listen to what Paul says to the church at Philippi. <clears throat> he writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Verse 5, in your relationships one with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In verse 6, he describes what that mindset is. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now here we have maybe the most beautifully written and yet also uh, distilled picture of, of what, what we could call, and I'll write it up here, the Christ story. The Christ story. And the Christ story reaches a, a scandalous climax at what we celebrate as Easter. And, and, and Paul kind of distills this whole Christ story in, in, in the sweeping narrative of you know, what we could call the slave king. The king who becomes a slave willfully steps into this role of slave. Um, and I don't think it's anywhere described more passionately, but also articulately, as it is here in this passage in Philippians chapter 2. And this is the most scandalous, revealing story on God that we have, that you'll ever read. It tells us um, what's in his mind. It tells us what he, what he thought about all the things that he did, why he did, his inmost motives. Not only that, but we're also told, and this is a key thing for us as, as, as we walk through here over the next few weeks, it tells us the reason why he shows us all of this. And it is so that uh, this same mind, verse 5, this same mind will be in you. It tells us that the Christ story, uh, what the Christ story is, and tells us how it is that, that we can reorient ourselves and our lives to, to, to find what it means to be like Christ. 
So in the series, we're going to be looking at this passage as it tells us of, um, we're going to kind of distill it into a couple, a couple points. So it talks about the incarnation. It talks about his crucifixion. Talks about his resurrection. And then finally, what we'll call glorification. And so this kind of four-point outline of what Paul walks us through, and so we're going to break this down and each week talk about one element in the Christ story here <coughs> that we look at. Um, and if I, if I take this into my life somehow, um, I want us to explore how is it that, that, that this will change me because the beginning of the passage says, let this same mind that, that motivated all this incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, glorification, <coughs> let that same mind characterize your life in such a way that that is who you are. That is your identity. That is the center of your life. And so, and so what we're going to be talking about here tonight is just this piece here. Verses 5 through 7, I want us to focus in on and see um, wh what does this mean and ask that question, how, how should this affect my mind and how I live? Well, the first thing that we have as a result of this, this, this incarnation, first thing we see is the reality that, that, that Jesus existed before he was a little baby, right? We call this the pre-existence. When we talk about him, we refer him as, you know, Christ prior to becoming human, that, that he existed eternally with God the Father and God the Son. Listen to verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. <clears throat> so here's the question I want to ask. How should this affect our minds, this reality that Jesus is God of very God in nature? It says he is in very nature divine. How should this affect our mind? And there's three, three points that I want to talk about tonight that I think thi this should influence, impact our thinking and our whole lives. The first thing that I would say is this is empowering for victorious Christian living. If Christ, through the Holy Spirit, is, is living in me, present with, with my thoughts, because this is the key piece, isn't it? My mind, where I go with my thoughts. And he's God. How can I continue to be so pessimistic in my life that, oh, I'll never change. I'll never get over this hurt or this habit or this hang-up. I'll never really live a victorious Christian life. Oh, I'll never. See, that's not let the same mind that was in Christ be in you. There's a, there's a key passage in 2 Corinthians 10, 5 that speaks of this this um, reality of our, our mind and the role that it plays in our transformation. Listen to 2 Corinthians 10.5. <clears throat> we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And here's the key phrase. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. This idea of taking thoughts captive so that they come under the lordship of Christ. Because he knows that this, you know, mind is kind of this battlefield in, in which so much of our life plays out. One of the biggest obstacles to a flourishing mind is 
is what we might just call mindlessness. Um, my body's at the dinner table, but my mind isn't, right? Um, maybe, maybe it's running over my problems, this kind of repetitive, anxious, dull, um, low-grade obsession with the problems of my day, with the different tasks that I have to do or what's coming on the next day. And so my mind is almost like hostage to all of, all of these thoughts. And people can tell, you know, my face, um, it's, less, it's less active, it's less responsive, and, and I even talk less. But, but when I do talk, uh, you know, it tends to be more superficial and kind of curt and short with people. Um, see, I don't do this on purpose. It simply becomes a habit of my mind that I have allowed to take place wherever I am. And living a life in the presence of Christ means paying attention to our thoughts. This is why the psalmist says, I love the psalm. Do you remember this one? Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me, know my anxious thoughts. I love that. See, God already knows them, but what he's doing is saying, show me, God, what's there. Test me and show my life. See, as I monitor my mind, I'm going to encounter thoughts that, that, are, that are unwelcome visitors. Uh, I get anxious, or um, I pout, I envy. But, but I will also begin to recognize what kind of thoughts the Spirit flows in, which are very different. So here, here's kind of a little test. Um, take, take any thought that you have. You're sitting there at the dinner table, or you're at work, or you're driving in the car, you know, wherever you might be. Take, take that thought... And usually the one that, you know, just kind of keeps, you keep coming back to in a lot of different ways. And, and, and ask some of these questions. Um, what direction do these thoughts lead me in? Like, where does this take me? Um, are they leading me toward life? Uh, toward the person that, that, that God wants for me, me to be? Or is it leading me in a totally different direction? See, if you, if you, if you really need help monitoring these, th these kind of um, bad habits of, of thinking. Here's a, here's a simple way. John Ortberg talks about this test, this kind of way, way to um, evaluate your thinking. It's called experience sampling method. Experience sampling method. And, and here's essentially what you do. Get, get a watch or an iPhone or anything though that has like an alarm on it. And just set it to beep at random intervals throughout your day. And whenever it goes off, Write down um, where you are and what you're doing, and then what's, like, what's the thought that you're thinking of? You know, what is that thing that's on your mind? And then, and then kind of do like a scale of a 1 to 10. You know, you do that throughout the day, and then kind of, you know, rate it. Okay, a scale of 1 to 10. Um, how much peace does this thought give me? How much peace does it bring into my life? Scale of 1 to 10. 1 being like, no, nah, not at all. 5 is, yeah, it really does. It brings me there. And then another question, um, how connected do I feel with God right now with this thought? Is it a one, like, man, I feel totally disconnected with God, nothing at all? Or no, this actually pushes me. I really feel connected as I pursue this thought in my life. And, and he says, do this for a week, just one week, and then look at, look at the activities and the people that, that most help you live in the flow of the Spirit. And then ask yourself, could I, could I like increase those in my life? And likewise, um, 
what are, the, what are the things that block the flow of the Spirit? Can I diminish those, those activities, those people, those settings, those scenarios, where I'm at? So Jesus becomes a man, and we see that this, that this first role that the, that the mind plays in it is key. Listen to, listen to Philippians 2, verse 6. Speaking of the incarnation, speaking of Jesus, it says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Okay, so a second question that we have to ask, um, how should this affect our mind, right? Because this affects how we live. How does it impact our mind? Well, I would say that this gives us, as we, as we drill down into this idea of God becoming man, this incarnation, this enfleshment of the second person of the Trinity, that this gives me a whole new dynamic for loving people. Um, this passage is talking about, at least inferring or implying, the Trinity. Okay? We don't have time to go into all that tonight. But this idea that there's, there's one God who, who, who has three centers of consciousness in him, one what, three who's who have this dynamic self-giving love relationship between them. Um, Augustine, the early, early church father, this is a guy who lives in like the 300s and 400s, uh, he, he did this great work on the Trinity, this writing on the Trinity, and he said, okay, a lot of people believe in God, right? And, um, but he said, if, if you have a God who, who is um, who's a monad, Unitarian, only one person in God, not multi-personal, not this three centers or you know, more than one center of consciousness. If you have just this Unitarian concept of God, you have a defective God, he says. Here's, here's why. Because that God never loved anybody until he created. Think about that. He's existed from all eternity, but he never loved anyone until he created. Now, maybe that's humans or angels. or He had to create another mind in order to get a need met. He had a love need. He's defective. He's not a perfect God. And therefore, he creates to get his needs met. Or if you say, well, he didn't have that need, he just did anyway. Well, then, even there, he's not, he's not in his very essence loving he just does that kind of secondarily. Oh, I guess I'll love now that they're a creature. But he's not in and of himself a loving being. See, that's not the case with the God of the Bible, is it? The God of the Bible has this loving relationship which is inherent to what it means to be God. This is why scripture doesn't say God loves. It says God is love. It's trying to communicate this idea that it is at the very core of who God is. And here's the great part about it. One who has a need, see, if I, I, I have needs, so there is always the danger that I could exploit you, right? Because I need you for things. If I need someone to do this, I need, there's, there's the possibility that I might exploit you for my needs, Right? This, that's why this, kind of, this concept of a God might exploit you. He might ask you to do something that's not in your own best interest, but that meets his needs. Again, totally different God that we have in Scripture. 
This God from all eternity is self-sufficient. Within the three persons of the Godhead, there's this dynamic self-giving. Full, needs fully met. There's, there are no needs. There's no wants. It's just complete fulfillment. And so he creates, when he does, he doesn't create to get from us. He creates to give to us. It's a totally different picture. This is the only game in town when it comes to a God who creates and will not exploit. He cannot exploit because he does not need. And so here's the temptation for us as we think about, okay, this is this kind of God. It's a God who, who moves out, right? He serves, he gives, he condescends himself, stepping down, pouring himself out, as this passage says, into human life, taking on human nature. How does this impact our mind? Well, here's one thing. Um, many of us, I think, move out into other people's lives. It could be counseling. It could be, it could be some service way of someone around us. And we could be really gifted. Like, you might be very um, empathic. You might have uh, gifts of, you know, compassion or the ability to, you know, give a good word to someone in a lot of ways. But here, here's the danger, is that, w that we, we move out more to meet our own needs than the needs of the other person that we're serving. And of course, now we're human, right? That's, we're always going to have needs that are met as a byproduct or as a result of, of, of serving. That's what it means to have gifts and use them well and to experience pleasure in those things. But again, there's that danger of it becomes more about meeting my needs than the person that I'm serving. And here's some ways that you can, you can pick up on that, that you can tell. When you don't get the response you want by the person that, that, that you've been serving, you know, when you don't get the gratitude, right? You know, the person just is not grateful. Um, when you feel kind of bothered because they're, you know, they're not really responding the way you want them to, um, do you feel the need to control them? You know, like, are you the kind of person you just kind of always have your feelings hurt by that? You feel kind of snubbed all the time by people? It's probably more about you than it is about them. I was talking to a friend of mine uh, today, uh, David, who, who teaches some graduate-level courses for people going into counseling and therapy and all this. And I was just asking him about this. I said, like, is this a, you know, is this a danger? Does this happen? Do you see people moving into some of these areas of this service orientation? And, and yet it's, it really, at the end of the, end of the day, ends up being about them. And he said, and he said, here's the danger. He said, it's two dangers. There's like two different ways, you know, that you can go. Number one is, he said, you know, when I get coaxed from helping someone, oh, that's so good. You just changed my life. Oh, thank you so much. You know, you, you're, you're so wise. You're so special. Um, you know, people feed you this idea. And he says, the danger is you become arrogant. You get, you get proud. And you start thinking, and then things become more about you. And of course, as a result, when things are about you, you're less able to empathize, it really takes away from your ability to do it because it's about you. And he said, or the, the other response when it's more about you is that uh, when the person doesn't respond well, you don't get the applause, um, you're crushed, right? Um, you become distraught because you didn't get your needs met in that way. But, and I love this, David was going to say this, he said, but you know, this is one thing that we talk about you know, in counseling is, what is my identity in Christ? Am I really loved by God? 
Do I really believe that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ? Am I really a son of God? Am I adopted into the family? If I really believe that, if I know that, if my mind is oriented in that way, I won't be constantly searching to have those needs met. If I have the same mind that is in me, that is in Christ, then I don't fall into that hole. Because you're moving out from a place of absolute acceptance. I'm in the tripersonal God who in himself is totally fulfilled. And out of that, the son moved, having, having no needs because they're fully met in the Godhead. And the model is that's how I live my life. I go out into my workplace, I go into my marriage relationship, I parent my kids, I do all these things, and if it's not out of a place of living within the tri-personal Godhead, being fully, my, my, my deepest needs, I should say, met there, I'll constantly be looking and searching, and I'm, I'm this needy person constantly. So how should this affect our mind? A third thing. Because of the incarnation, God becoming man, matter matters. Matter matters to God. Um, now look in uh, Philippians 2, verse 6. And we need to be careful with the grammar here. This is, this is an interesting point that, that Paul makes here. When he says, who being in very nature God, okay? The word being, the verb there, it's in the imperfect tense, meaning it goes on. He didn't say who, who was God and then became human, he used to be. He said who being and continues to be God now takes on humanity, the God-man. This is the phrase that the church has used to refer to our Savior, the God-man. Not mixing them, not less of one, fully God, fully human. And so what we see here is that he's fully God, becoming human, and this addresses a huge issue in our world today, human history, everything, what's the relationship between the spiritual and the physical? See, if you think about like the, you know, the ancient Greco-Roman world, that's one of the influences here that Paul, that Jesus was dealing with. You go to the Greco-Roman world and see matter, stuff, you know, physicality, it's, it's either evil or it's, it's impure, it's lesser. And, and see, God would never become a human. God would never touch stuff. You don't, you know, you don't want to mix those, the spirit and the physical, and there's a huge gulf between the two of them. Or if you go to the Eastern world, um, matter isn't evil, but, but they see it as unimportant. Matter is an illusion. Your body's an illusion. Physicality, it's, it's, it's temporary and illusory. It's not really real. So the idea of becoming God, well, sure, it's fine, as long as you understand it's temporary. And again, it's an all, all an illusion anyway. But see, neither the, the Greco-Roman world or the Eastern world, and certainly not you know, the, even the Middle Eastern world of, say, Islam, could say that God inhabited a body permanently. This whole idea of the incarnation of God. He took on human nature. See, this is radical. This, this idea changed the world that God would do this. Colossians 2.9, we read, in him, speaking of Jesus, in him, the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. Think about that. This idea shattered the world. Do you know what this, what this is teaching us? Different from any other philosophy that's out there is that God does not, the, God does not think of the, the physical as more important than the spiritual, and he doesn't think of the spiritual 
as more important than the physical. See, that, that changes everything. That changes how we live life. That changes our goal of the future. Look at the Bible. Think about this. The very first picture we have of God, what's he doing? His hands are in the dirt, right? He's got dirt under his fingernails. Right? He's gardening. We talked about that idea three weeks ago. The last picture we have of God, what do we see? It's God cleaning up the natural universe and the, and the toxins of, of sin and, and evil and, and rehabbing a beautiful new urban home for himself. It's not him taking us up. Remember, it's him coming down. Speaks of the city coming down. That's why we move from a garden in Genesis to a city in Revelation. God likes stuff. He invented stuff. And in the center of the Bible, the two main events that we celebrate, what are our two biggest Christian holidays anyway? Christmas, right? Taking on a body, the incarnation. And Easter, the redemption of a body. They're both important. Uh, do you remember the one warning that, that, that God gave to Adam and Eve? He said, if you rebel, if you sin, he said ahead of time, there's one thing that will happen. He said, death will come. Now, he surely meant spiritual death. He also meant physical death. And what we see here is that, see, sin has always kept the body and the soul apart. That's the nature of sin. It is to drive a wedge between the two. That's why death is unnatural. That's why disembodiment is not our final end. It's unnatural. Jesus came to let the body and the soul live in integrity. See, only, only the gospel, this, this whole incarnation thing, allows me to hold the spiritual and the physical together with integrity. Because, see, if, if you reject the gospel, okay, you could be either religious and reject the gospel or, or irreligious and reject the gospel, okay? If you're religious and you reject the gospel, um, you're uncomfortable with physical things, right? You start to think they're unimportant. You say, well, it's, it's unimportant. It's all going to burn anyway. And you're almost, almost uncomfortable with stuff. You know, why should we take care of, uh, you know, the city? Or why should we clean up this? Or why should we provide food or feed this person? Because that's, that's just the physical, you know, we kind of say, right? Or, or you could be irreligious and reject the gospel, and, and this is just the idea that, you know, you worship the physical because that's all you have. Um, your body tells you to have sex, well, do it. Why? Because that's all there is. It's a life of comfort. It's a life of feeding the body. That's all we have. Life is all about that. There was a, uh, uh, a f one of our guys on staff, Pastor Reza, sent me this, this talk online. Have you heard of TED, T-E-D, TED Talks, these fascinating um, short talks that you can look them up online and and th there was one that he sent me this last week by a, a female supermodel beautiful woman her name is cameron russell she's been modeling for like uh 11 years she put up all these pictures of all she's done and it was this like unguarded moment of her saying here's how empty things are when life is all about the physical that's like that's all there is she said this she said the truth is i'm insecure and I love the reason why, she said, because I have to think about how I look all day long. And she said, if you think that, that, that you'll be more secure if you have thinner thighs and shinier hair and cooler clothes, she said, um, let me just introduce you. You just need to meet a group of models who have the thinnest thighs and the shiniest hair and the coolest clothes you've ever met. And she said, quote, they're the most physically insecure women probably on the planet. <laughs> Do 
you see what this is saying? Either the physical will be something that will drive you and it will become something that you're, you're either um, afraid of or becomes unimportant or, um, or you move to this place of, of this religious view where it's only, only the spiritual. But see, only the gospel allows us to talk about salvation of the soul and cleaning up a neighborhood. Um, this, this, this weekend coming up, I don't know how many of you are going to be going to, we're, well, both Saturday night and Sunday morning our services, we're going to be talking about this missions emphasis, where we've been, the celebration of what God has done through Timberline to impact the world as well as even just our own community here. And, and on Sunday night, uh, there's this, this major focus on it. Um, and we're, you know, we've got you know, tickets for sale for that. Um, and we've been talking about the past couple weeks, but one of the coolest things, I'll give you kind of a little sneak, sneak preview into what's, what's going to be talked about. Pastor Mark Orpin is going to be talking about Serve 6.8, a ministry of Timberline Church, which is becoming its own 501c3. It ha has acquired for free, but this isn't, this doesn't benefit us at all. <laughs> the Murphy Center, which is this organization in town that has 20, 23 different community organizations coming together to be a central place to meet the physical needs of people in our community, of the most destitute, of the homeless, or the people who are on the verge, the families who are on the verge of becoming homeless. And Pastor Mark was talking to us about it this morning, and Karen knows about it, and they've just been working their tails off in this direction. And he, he said, now, why are we doing this? Because we're all kind of going like, this isn't helping us at all. This is, you know, he's talking about it's going to require this kind of budget that we've got to get outside of our budget. We've got to staff it with this many people and all this sort of thing. And, and it was like, why? And what I thought to myself is, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to use to his own advantage. Don't consider your big, beautiful building something to use to your own advantage. Don't consider your paycheck something to use to your own advantage. Don't consider the gifts and the relationships that you have to be used to your own advantage. Because see, if you look at the reality of the story of the Bible, rewrite this passage, not as the Christ story, but as the human story. Here's how I think it would go. Though we were not in very nature God, we considered equality with God something to be grasped, making ourselves everything. There was an article in the New Yorker, which was also talking about these reality shows. And this journalist and uh, feminist activist, as she described herself, was, was, was talking about how, how, what it does to women and, and, and how it portrays things. And, and um, her name is Jennifer Pons Posner, and she, she told the story of how on The Bachelor there was this woman who was, had been uh, not eating meat vegetarian for 12 years, and she wanted to get this guy so much that she ate a bite of lamb, and, and, and then the guy you know, discards her from the show, and she's, and she's just crushed. And she had this statement in there speaking about this situation. She said, um, speaking of this poor woman who in her view was um, victimized, she said, this figure, the woman, was crushed for our amusement. And she said, that's the driving force of all of this kind of reality stuff. She was crushed for our amusement. And I thought of Isaiah 53, verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquity. See, without the incarnation, without the cross, we crush and we extort others and ourselves. 
But he took upon himself, he bore all of our sufferings. He empowers us to live the life that he calls us to only because he was crushed. He went down that we could come up. He was submerged into darkness in order that we could live in light. He gave up everything that we could have everything.